Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Molly Mintz from the Opinion and Analysis Desk. This might be India's moment. The country has a quickly growing gross domestic product and emerging middle class that is reaping rewards on foreign companies. Amazon and Walmart are spending billions to capture the attention of the population. But it is Netflix that entered India in a blaze of promotion and with a bag full of cash. The streaming service thinks the country is an untapped market, says Kieran Stacey. Will Netflix's strategy succeed in scoring 100 million subscribers in India? Or will they fail to understand the country's consumers? The first thing that comes into view as the camera pans up from the bottom of an austere tower block is the shape of a dog. Do you believe in God? asks the voiceover as the animal tumbles downwards. As the dog hits the ground with a dull thud, the voice intones, God doesn't give a fuck. With that noir flourish, stylistically familiar to audiences worldwide, from hit shows such as House of Cards or Narcos, Netflix this month launched its first ever Indian-produced series, Sacred Games. The show, based on the 2007 novel by Vikram Chandra, is an eight-part multi-million dollar thriller set in the Mumbai criminal underworld and featuring Hindi film stars Saif Ali Khan, Nawazuddin Siddiqui and Radhika Apti. But more than that, it is a statement of intent. Netflix, the streaming service with 125 million global subscribers, views India as the next major source of revenue growth, not least because the country's number of internet users has doubled in the past four years, to 500 million. Even we couldn't have predicted the last two years of Indian internet growth, Reed Hastings, Netflix chief executive, told a conference in Delhi this year. Talking about how the company had reached 125 million subscribers, he added, the next 100 million is from India. Mr Hastings' optimism reflects a mood among many Western executives that after several false dawns, this might be India's moment. The country's gross domestic product is growing at 7.7% a year, faster than any other major economy. And, while many think growth should be even higher, it boasts both a young population and a Prime Minister in Narendra Modi who wants to encourage foreign capital. Consumer companies are keen to reap the rewards of India's emerging middle class. Amazon has pledged to spend $5 billion trying to become the country's biggest online retailer. Its main challenger is Walmart, which this year made India's biggest ever direct foreign investment, with a $16 billion takeover of Flipkart. IKEA is set to open its first megastore in the country next month. Not only is India large, but it is growing so quickly, Doug McMillan, Walmart's chief executive, said the day after completing the Flipkart deal. The middle-income progress that is being made in urban centres and rural areas is very exciting for us, he said. But, as many corporate rivals could tell both Mr Macmillan and Mr Hastings, investing in India requires boundless patience and deep pockets, and even then may well be doomed to failure. Not only are there the usual pitfalls of stifling bureaucracy, 
widespread corruption and unpredictable policy changes, but experts warn that many Western companies misjudge their target market in India, especially when it comes to the so-called middle class. Devdutt Patanaik, a former executive at Mumbai-based Future Group, the retail conglomerate, says, Western companies visualize the Indian middle class as they view the Western middle class, whereas in fact, only the rich in India can afford most of the middle class lifestyles of Western cities. Netflix entered India in a blaze of promotion and with a bag full of cash. Advertisements for sacred games are plastered over the Delhi metro and close to the airport. Its executives speak with a familiar zeal about the potential of the Indian market. Like many Western companies, it has been shut out of China and hopes India will help make up for the lost growth opportunity. We are carried away with enthusiasm by India, says Todd Yellen, vice president of product at Netflix. We think it will be one of our biggest sources of growth over the next few years, he adds. The company believes that India, where audiences are used to lavish Bollywood film productions but mainly watch low-budget soap operas on television, is a vast, untapped market for its brand of glossy, highly produced shows. In its attempt to crack that market, Netflix is pursuing the same strategy that has earned it a $180 billion valuation even before it makes a profit, spending big on original content in a variety of genres and making the customer pay. Alongside Sacred Games, Netflix has made a collection of short films about sex under the title Lust Stories, and next month will release a horror series entitled Ghoul. And, if anyone doubted its ambition, it recently announced a plan to turn Midnight's Children, Salman Rushdie's sprawling novel about India's transition into independence, into a series too. The company has always been reluctant to disclose financial viewing figures, but Anurag Kashyap, who co-directed Sacred Games, told the Financial Times he was given a budget equal to what he would spend on one of his films. His 2013 film Bombay Velvet cost $13 million. Indian television would not risk itself with this, says Mr Kashyap. National television channels want to appeal to everyone. That means there is no space for anything new, and we would have to dumb it down, he explains. Netflix does not carry advertising, so to fund productions such as Sacred Games, it is charging Indian subscribers between 500 rupees, $7, and 800 rupees a month, roughly what its Western subscribers pay. Amazon, as a comparison, charges 129 rupees a month for its Prime service, which includes streaming. According to estimates by IHS Market, a market research company, Amazon's streaming service had 610,000 subscribers to Netflix's 522,000 at the end of 2017. Hotstar, the market leader, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch's 21st Century Fox, has 1.6 million. We see this as a fairly broad product over time, says Eric Barmack, Netflix's vice president of international original content. A cinema ticket at a multiplex, combined with popcorn and travel, is equivalent to the price of a Netflix subscription per month, he says. Western consumer companies that have had success in India have, unlike Netflix, usually appealed to the lower end of the market. Suzuki, for example, turned its low-cost Swift model into one of India's most popular cars. The company made 110 billion rupees of pre-tax profits in the country in 2017-18, to alongside its local partner Maruti, nearly four times what it made five years ago. India is now the Japanese company's biggest market. Hindustan Unilever, meanwhile, in which the global consumer goods company owns a 54% stake, has also focused on selling high volumes of relatively low-priced items, such as its single-use pouches of shampoo and face cream.
The company made 72.9 billion rupees of pre-tax profits in 2017-18, up nearly 70% in the past five years. But for every success story, there are examples of multinationals that have failed to crack India. Often, strict regulations, stifling bureaucracy and capricious rule changes have been to blame, in part a legacy of India's historic antipathy towards global capitalism. IKEA, for example, announced in 2006 that it intended to open its first store in India, but then spent years trying in vain to persuade New Delhi to relax rules forbidding foreign companies from operating retail stores without a local partner. In 2009, the company said it was abandoning the plans, but then revived them when the government eventually relented. Nearly 10 years later, it is finally about to open in the southern city of Hyderabad. Meanwhile, both Vodafone, the telecoms company, and Cairn, the British oil explorer, have been hit with retrospective tax claims for several billion pounds, which they have since spent years fruitlessly trying to appeal. The other big risk is that companies simply fail to understand who should be buying their products. General Motors last year announced it would no longer sell Chevrolet cars in India after 21 years in the country, during which time it went through two joint venture partners, nine chief executives, and more than $1 billion in investment. Analysts say the company never produced the kind of cheap but heavily accessorized car that Indians really want. And, despite the fact that India is the third biggest smartphone market in the world, Apple sold just 500,000 iPhones there in the first quarter of this year, according to CounterPoint Research, roughly the same as its sales in Malaysia or Mexico. Its iPhone X costs about $1,500 in India, 20 times the cost of the cheapest Samsung. Giant Collar, partner at the Bangalore-based business consultancy Convergence Catalyst, says, Western companies often get the Indian market completely wrong, though it is a failure more often made by American companies than European ones. American companies don't seem to understand how fragmented and diverse India is, he adds. The problem for many companies wanting to sell to Indian consumers, especially at the premium end like Netflix, is that while the country's middle class is growing, it has nothing like the spending power of its Western equivalent. The country's gross domestic product per capita in purchasing power parity terms last year was just over $7,000, according to the World Bank. In China, often touted as the model for Indian development, it was more than double that. Economists Sanjay Krishnan and Neeraj Hateka last year defined the new Indian middle class as those spending between $2 and $10 a day, some 600 million people. Their French counterparts Lucas Chancel and Thomas Piketty calculated that to qualify among the top 10% of earners in 2015, a person would have had to have made around $3,000 a year, roughly the salary for a highly sought-after job as a domestic worker in an affluent city. There are about 50 million Indians that would be the global middle class, says Jayant Sinha, India's aviation minister and a former finance minister. That means they can fly everywhere in the country, they can fly internationally, they own a car, they have a stable job, he says. Mr Sinha continues, Then we have an Indian middle class of about 200 to 250 million people who have a stable job but not a well-paying one. They have many of the things you would expect a middle class person to have a refrigerator, a motorcycle, a smartphone, etc. Thereafter, we have about 500 million people who would be aspiring middle class. They would probably just have a motorcycle, he says. This is the challenge facing consumer companies spending big in India. Amazon is attempting to capture the market by discounting heavily and hoping it can outlast the Walmart-controlled Flipkart in a prolonged price war. IKEA is hoping to entice shoppers to buy its furniture, 
which at first will be imported and therefore relatively expensive, by stocking a thousand items at below 200 rupees, from light bulbs to small rugs. For Netflix, if Mr. Hastings is right that its next 100 million subscribers will come from India, the company must sell subscriptions not only to every single member of what Mr. Sinner calls India's global middle class, but a considerable portion of those on lower incomes. If Netflix is looking at the most affluent 25 million Indians, then it is doing the right thing, says Mr. Collar. These people have probably heard of Netflix and are able to spend what they are charging. But if they are looking at the bigger India, one billion or so Indians, they have definitely, definitely got that wrong, he says. For directors and producers such as Mr. Kashyap, who have been given big budgets for films before, but never for the kind of series in which Netflix specialises, the freedom is liberating. However, even as he praises his new paymaster, he identifies a major hurdle that Netflix will face. The problem is, he says, that India is a country where everyone likes everything for free. Thanks for listening to the FT Big Read. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on all the usual apps. For a limited time, podcast listeners can save 50% on a digital subscription to the FT. To get the special half-price rate of just £2.65 per week, visit ft.com slash offer 50. This episode is produced by Molly Mintz. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.